health systems and clinicians don't respond very well to top-down admonitions from somebody up on high, whether it's the Secretary of State or the Health Ministry or, or the CEO of the Trust. They just don't respond very well to that. They have a different rhythm to what they respond to. They respond to new ideas, clinical practice. That's Jeffrey Braithwaite, Professor of Healthcare Systems Research and President of the International Society for Quality in Healthcare. Jeffrey is the author of a new analysis on bmj.com, which is the first in a series looking at healthcare science. Funded by the Health Foundation, we'll be taking a very practical as well as a very philosophical view. To discuss that, I'm joined on the line by Jeffrey. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Duncan. And I'm joined by Kat Chatfield, the BMJ's quality editor, who's been shepherding the series to life. Hi, Kat. Hi, Duncan. Now, Jeffrey's article are open saying, somewhat depressingly, only 50 to 60% of care has been delivered in line with level one evidence. A third of medicine, roughly, is waste. And adverse events affect one in 10 patients. Um, is that the kind of stat that prompted the, this series to, uh, to be commissioned and, and come to life? I think everyone who's involved in healthcare and delivering healthcare knows that it could be better. Everyone has observed multiple episodes of harm, some likely to be quite serious harm to patients, some likely to be less serious harm. Um, and I think this series is really aimed at reaching out to those clinicians working in the system and giving them opportunities to think about the ways in which the system is disordered and think about ways in which they could get involved in making it better. Great. And um, can you just give us a very quick overview of, of what people can expect to see coming up? So the series is going to run over the next year uh, and we'll be running a series of analysis pieces, which are we call them scholarly debate. So there'll be arguments based on evidence, but taking certain positions on uh, how have we been trying to improve healthcare so far? What are the challenges? In what ways have we been doing it wrong? What ways can we try and do it better? What new thinking is coming into our understanding of health services and how they're delivered? How can we do that meaningfully in partnership with patients? So some of those themes will be emerging throughout the series. And then there'll be a series of more, as you said, Duncan, practical grounded pieces. So running through our education section about, you know, how do you get started with improvement um, on a small scale, local clinical team level? Um, what sort of tools might you need? Where can you get support? Um, how can you understand things like relational aspects of change and um, drawing from other disciplines, uh, behavioural sciences, sociology, just trying to broaden the experience for clinicians that they probably have never had in their formal training to help them understand how they might go about ch making change. Um, and, you know, Geoffrey, your opening article in this series, just, uh, just a little thing, you just want to change how we think about healthcare improvement. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the article is kind of about complexity and complexity science and, and what that thinking can bring to it. But um, before we get in there, just to sort of set this up, uh, what is complexity? Well, how is it different from something that's complicated? I think that's probably just worth setting out. So something that's complicated has a lot of moving parts, but it's predictable about where it's going to head. 
So you can think about, you know, NASA is trying to send uh, to send a spacecraft to Mars. And that's extremely complicated. It's a complicated project. The craft is going to be complicated. The, the calculations by which NASA will use um, math, heavy mathematics to get that craft to Mars, all of that is complicated. It's not complex in the sense that it's predictable. You can work out mathematically, physically, um, logistically how to do that. The health system is an order of magnitude different from that. It, of course, is complicated, but it's complex, meaning that it's not easy to predict what's going to happen next. The number of moving parts is far more. Well, it's virtually infinite, um, far more than um, than sending sending a NASA spacecraft to Mars. And that's a nice encapsulation of the difference between complicated and complex. Mm. Uh, so in that, um, is it just that the complexity is because we're unable to measure all those things? Or is it just that sort of, you know, chaos that comes out of, of complexity that means that um, regardless of how good we get at measurement or, or calculation, we would never be able to actually, you know, predict all those moving parts? It's not complete chaos, is it? Because much of care is organised. If you think about the front lines of care, it's definitely fraught, relentless, difficult, often uncertain. Patients are presenting who are uncertain. Uh, the diagnosis might be hard to get. Uh, care might unfold in ways that we can't completely predict. Things are emergent, to use a complexity term, but it's not chaotic. There are orders of organization um, on the front lines of care um, from clinicians themselves and the rules that they follow and the way that they interact with each other, all the way through to the policymakers who try to impose a different kind of order through um, through mandating various rules or imposing or suggesting or or um, or or hoping that for example standard operating procedures or policy will be carried out by those at the sharp end of the system mm. and I suppose um, my other question is uh, does this sort of act at levels so is a whole hospital, um, a complex system, but a ward might be a complicated system? Not really. I mean, yes, there might be more moving parts and more complexity at the whole hospital level compared to something that's, if you like, a bit more manageable at the individual patient or the ward or, 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 or the large department level. But each is a complex system. Each is in fact a complex adaptive system because you can't predict in any individual patient across any particular ward or across the whole hospital how things might be over the next few days, um, um, what sort of care will be needed for the mix of patients that changes at the ward level over the next couple of months. Um, so, so there's a level of emergence, unpredictability, and differing feedback loops that operate on all complex systems, all complex adaptive systems, that means that they adapt to the rhythm, to their own rhythm, almost, regardless of what external inputs uh, might be applied to try and control things. So there's a level of independent interaction that's different from 
those who want to impose control on a complex system. And that applies at a patient or a ward or a clinical team or a whole hospital level. Mm. I'm not a doctor. I studied um, as a biologist, did lots of environmental science. And what you're describing sounds very much like an ecosystem to me. That's a very good point, Duncan. So, um, So that's what we're talking about, really, aren't we? We're talking about biological and social ecosystems. That's why complexity science is so interesting, especially for clinicians, because they really understand, even even if a clinician hasn't had training in how the health system runs, they get experience with that, but they are experts in complexity. Every clinician is, because they are trained to understand biological um, subsystems, um, the whole person, and all the various subsystems that go to make up the person. And they're trained to look at when those subsystems break down, i.e. disease or some sort of condition appears. And so that sort of level of thinking, the biological training that you had and the anatomical and physiological um, uh, and disease mechanisms training that clinicians have, it's very important. Now all you have to do is look up into the health system itself, the NHS, in the case of many many of uh, the BMJ's readers. And um, and you can start to apply those similar characteristics of what governs a complex system from the knowledge that you already have. You just have to apply it in a different ecosystem to use that lovely word that you introduced, Duncan. So, Jeffrey, you actually just previewed something I was about to ask because one of the things that I think will really appeal and resonate with clinicians in reading your piece is this idea of complexity and emergence because as you said, it feels so close to how you practice on a daily basis with patients. Um, the idea of uncertainty and, and clinical risk and judgment, all of those things that, that clinicians are constantly using and feedback loops um, to, to deliver care. So I guess my question is, you've said that clinicians need to look up to the health system, be that the NHS or other systems, and to start to apply some of those skills um, that they have to work in that system. But I guess it strikes me that a lot of the ways in which we are have historically made change to those systems, they have not incorporated any of that flexibility and responsiveness and ability to adapt that, that you're describing. So how can we start to make improvements that, that can flex and respond as change becomes emergent rather than dictated? That's a big question. Kat, that's a great point. It is a very big question, but it's a great point. So so what I'm worried about is that we do understand across the last 25 years how complex systems work, the ones that we've been describing, biological systems or a ward in a hospital or a clinical microsystem is some of the buzz um, buzz uh, phrases people use or an entire hospital or indeed a, an entire trust. But what we've often done is not use the right mechanisms to try and engender change, to try and improve quality. We've often done things top down. We've often introduced new policy that we expect people to take up in a one-to-one correspondence between the issuing of the policy and the take up of the policy on the front lines of care. We've often, what I like to think of is thickened the rule book. Instead of thinking, is there anybody going to have the time? or the capacity to take up this new policy when 
there may be already hundreds of policies in existence, for example, or rules. Um, the other thing we've done is we've more avidly than I'd like regulated. Sometimes we've not regulated at all in some parts of the system, and other times we've regulated much, much too um, avidly. The other thing is we've introduced indicators and then changed the indicators a year or so later uh, and targets and changed the targets a couple of years later. So the system itself feels disjointed in the way it responds to those top-down kind of initiatives. The other thing which I've railed against for many years, and some of your um, some of our listeners might have um, read some of my papers on this or heard me talk about this, is, um, is uh, people keep reorganizing, changing the boxes on the organization chart, um, expecting that that will lead to better care on the front lines. I, I'm not I'm not sure if there's any evidence whatsoever that that's a smart idea. And yet health systems keep doing that. <laughs> so so clearly, they may be sometimes necessary strategies to you know issue more policies, what I call thickening the rule book or put more regulation in place or reorganize the boxes on the chart and try and streamline the system or issue more KPIs, key performance indicators or targets. But they can't possibly be the whole box and dice, and they can't possibly be the answer because health systems and clinicians don't respond very well to top-down admonitions from somebody up on high, whether it's the Secretary of State or the Health Ministry or or the CEO of the trust. They just don't respond very well to that. They have a different rhythm to what they respond to. They respond to new ideas, clinical practice, new diagnoses, um, uh, um, new, new tests, um, what their clinical colleagues have um, to advise them, uh, clinical knowledge. So there's almost like systems within systems here, and some of them don't respond to each other. What I'm worried about, what keeps me awake at night, is how do we provide support to people on the front lines of care, the clinicians who read the BMJ, um, to have better change models. And that's what my piece is about, to say maybe we could provide stronger support to people on the front lines to work with people, to give them feedback about their performance rather than bash them over the head with some new key performance indicators or targets, um, to, to facilitate change and improvement with multiple stakeholders. And, of course, new things on the block to provide feedback to clinicians are... Um, patient reported outcomes or, or 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 new ways for us to hear um, what's happening to patients long term after they've come into our care and then been discharged to follow up on that care, find out what happens to patients and then feedback back to clinical teams. That seems to me that feedback, that um, treating the system as a complex system rather than something that's amenable to top-down insistence or or, um, or, uh, or or targets seems to be a much more sophisticated way to do change and one that clinicians understand much better. So it's interesting that when you were talking about um, finding different ways of giving clinicians feedback on their practice, it put me in mind of a new initiative uh, in the UK, which is the Getting It Right First Time programme, which uh, is about giving um, individual clinicians and departments their data about how they are performing uh, benchmarks against their peers and that's done by um, by clinicians from elsewhere so it's sort of peer-to-peer -peer, it's very kind of um, feedback at that level um, 
so I can, you can I can certainly see the appeal of that kind of approach given this sort of um, our complex adaptive model of the system. But then the thing that then they try to do with that program is then pull out from that data a sort of then a whole systems level answer. So from saying, well, we've done this X number of times across 150 trusts, and now we think that the solution for surgery, general surgery across the NHS is this. So I guess my question is, if we know that change is local and emergent and adaptive, can we then can we then extrapolate it to a much broader systems level? You know, is there such a thing as pan system best practice or, or do we always have to be mindful of local responsiveness? I, I, I think we have to do both and we have to get the balance right. One of the worries about a system like the NHS is there's a huge drive for standardisation. There's a huge drive to say we'd like everyone to get the same quality of care right across the system, whether they're treated in the northeast or in Kent or in London or wherever in the system they're treated. And that regardless of what kind of hospital or general practice they go to, they'll get the same standard of care. That's fine. But if you apply a template like that too rigorously, too robustly, you don't leave any scope for differences across different hospitals and general practices, and you don't leave any space for innovation. So there's a, there's a tension between the thousand flowers bloom, letting people do anything they like, and the people who want standardization. Now, any complex system has this problem. How much variety do you allow because you get innovation that way versus how much standardization and, um, and uh, this is the standard that everybody has to abide by. So let me just talk about quality for a second in that frame to answer your question. So, you know, we've bashed clinicians over the head, not just in the NHS, but everywhere, about the fact that around about 10% of all, um, of all care uh, has some sort of adverse event attaching to it. But what we've said, therefore, is this is intolerable. We must get that down to some level below 10%. To, to some level below one in 10. And what we've done is we've fixated um, quite mechanistically on we must have hand hygiene, root cause analysis, and all the other techniques that all the clinicians in the NHS know about to reduce that 10% down. Just turn the, turn the telescope the other way for a moment. That means that 90% of care in a system as complex as this doesn't have any harm. But we never really study that. We take it for granted that that's what the system should produce, and therefore we don't look at it any further. We hardly ever look at why care goes right so often. In fact, when I say a sentence like that, sometimes people laugh that we would look at why does care go right so often, because the message to clinicians has so frequently been, how come care goes wrong so frequently? How come care goes wrong so often? But if we do that, if we look at the system and everyday clinical work producing good care frequently, then what we can do is start to say, well, this is the system and how it works properly when it's working well. Admittedly, um, um, it's still frank, fragmented and disjunctive and it still has many problems. But the fact is we get care, clinicians get care right far more than they get it wrong. So why don't we study that? Because that's the complex adaptive system it's adapting and flexing to patients' needs and delivering care that's right frequently. 
So to answer your question, if we are therefore are giving, patient, uh, giving clinicians feedback, whether that's the patient's voice being fed back to clinical teams or actual results where we've done well, uh, delivered good care to patients and we're feeding that information back, maybe we can be, do more good care rather than obsessing with trying to get the bad care stamped out. Because to be honest, we've been trying to do that for 25 years and haven't made much of a dent in the numbers of patients who suffer an adverse event. So that's a more systems view of the world. That's a more complexity science perspective on how to improve and change healthcare. Jeffrey, reading your article and listening to you talk here, it seems to me like um, a lot of the complexity in the system is the people. It's that, that sort of human nature in it. And I wonder if there's any sort of thinking that you take from sociology or, or anything else that, um, that you use when, when thinking about improvement science. Indeed. Um, great question. So, so the system does um, not necessarily respond to top-down admonitions and prescriptions for this is the way things have to be. And as I, as I said earlier, it, it, it tends to change according to its own rhythm. And that's characteristic of a complex system. So we've looked at culture because culture is a key determinant at, at the ward or the department or the general practice or the hospital level. That's a, that's a key characteristic of um, how things can either stay the same because the culture pulls in a direction that the culture has always uh, always pulled, or it's also a recipe for if we can change the culture, make it, for example, less toxic or more embracing of new ideas or more productive culture, or one that nurtures people, that would be a better culture by which to deliver care. So we did a systematic review of all the studies we could find where someone had measured clinical or, or organizational culture in healthcare. These are all studies in healthcare and where they'd related that culture to clinical or organizational outcomes. In other words, we're testing the proposition. If you've got a good culture, do you deliver better outcomes at the organizational level and for patients? Most of us would hope that that's the case. So we found 62 studies in our systematic review, and I talk about this in the piece that we're, talk we're, that we're discussing at the moment for the BMJ. We found 62, um, 62 studies that have measured culture and compared them, associated them, with um, organizational or, uh, or clinical culture, uh, uh, clinical outcomes. And the answer was exactly in the direction we'd hope. 75% of these studies, um, uh, which had measured culture, uh, produced, uh, when they had a good culture, better outcomes for patients, better outcome, organizational outcomes. So therefore, we now think, and this piece that I've written for the BMJ alludes to this, the efforts to try and improve culture, have people deal with this, deal with people in a more trusting way, in a more, in a more inclusive way, to engender a good esprit de corps, to have people work more collaboratively together compared to a to toxic, you know, difficult, sociopathic type culture, you are much more likely to firstly have more well-being amongst the staff in that culture but more importantly, to deliver better outcomes for patients and better outcomes for the organization. So it really is time well spent. And that's a subset of producing a better complex adaptive system. 
Mm. And it seems like some of the interventions that might have happened in the past to try and make the, uh, to improve healthcare targets, lots of measurement, that kind of thing, may have actually pushed against, made some of those cultural elements worse in, uh, in hospitals. I fear that that's the case. I do fear that a number of clinicians um, believe that. They, they believe that, for want of a better term, it's not a term I often use, but for too much managerialism in the system and not enough respecting of professional values. And maybe sometimes the NHS and other health systems have overplayed their hands with too much top-down managerialism, too, too many imposed targets. Um, when clinicians really, uh, many of them perform better when they're freed up to deliver very good care to their patients. So this feedback notion, rather than bashing people over the head with a target, this notion of providing clinicians feedback and treating them much more um, as thinking um, professionals who want to do the right thing by their patient is perhaps a better model, more fitting to the healthcare system we'd like to have. Mm. Now, Kate, you've edited this series and this article as well, and you know you've been working in um, healthcare improvement for a long time. Um, I'm just wondering, did did this article, like thinking about complexity, uh, has that changed the way you think about um, quality or quality improvement or or anything that you you kind of do on a day to day basis? I think it's more that articulate so well a lot of things that I that I think clinicians already feel and think um, as Jeffrey was just saying I think you know clinicians the, the sort of morale in the system at the moment is very low or it's perceived to be very low uh, and I think you know sort of the idea that actually maybe some of the ways we've been trying to improve things haven't been very functional and then actually we should respect some of the sort of um I guess the professional ideals that a lot of clinicians hold dear about um you know having sort of some autonomy to make decisions uh, both for patients but on a wider scale and I think having um understanding that things are messy and complicated and that sort of real grounded real world view of healthcare I think I think what I like is that I that it's this article just touches on and encapsulates so many of those and says you know the way you might think and feel about healthcare you're right you know it's not that that some great mysterious um sort of edifice and that you have to go to endless lectures from think tanks about the complex mecha mechanistic structure of the health system it's okay that you can't really understand the uh perverse disincentives in the funding model for example but you know if you can you can still understand that it is a complex adaptive system you know how complex adaptive systems work you work with them all the time um, and you have the skills and the ability to to influence change within those systems I think that's what that's what it really appealed to me that kind of resonance and someone voicing all those things that you might already think does that make sense it does yes and I think the importance of the relational aspect of it, you know, understanding that um, a lot of it is about teams interacting with each other. Um, I think that's that's also important. Um, yeah, 
so I hope it I hope it sort of articulates a bit of a theory for people um, who who may be sort of experiencing these challenges. Um, and I wonder, I mean, if this is a question for both of you, uh, you know, for someone out there who who this does resonate with, um, how do you think that might affect the way that they would go about designing or, or thinking about a, a quality improvement project that they're doing themselves? So my feeling is that often when you start with QI and often the way that QI is taught in our system at the moment is it is quite mechanistic it is about this is a set of tools you should go away and apply this set of tools um and this i feel like people get taught a lot about the what and the how but not necessarily the the why of qi which is a slightly awkward phrase but i think um i think if you sort of go by the qi mantra of start small and scale up looking at this it really helps to understand why one might start small and scale up what is it about the system that makes that kind of approach to change more likely to be successful um you know because it's more adaptive because it's more responsive because it allows change to be more emergent uh, so i think this sort of joins the dots for me for a lot of people who are sort of trying to start off and removes it from that mechanistic tick box this is what a qi project looks like it must conform to these rules and regulations um, i think it sort of allows people, I think, to be more innovative, that space for innovation that, that Jeffrey mentioned, um, and to be more creative and to think about actually a lot of the things that I intuit about what's going wrong in our system, uh, you know, to trust people's own judgment about how their systems are performing um, and then to free them up to have the confidence to start to try and um, change some of those things without feeling like they have to go and do an MBA, you know. <laughs> So that's for people who are thinking about sort of designing it. But if you're a manager um, who's tasked with improving the quality in your hospital, you might feel like, yes, I know what to do. I want to, to do these things. But it seems like from what you're saying here, the best thing that a manager could do is make space for clinicians um, and other clinical staff to to come up with those improvements themselves. Yeah, look making space for clinicians to do quality improvement or even just do a good job, a better job, um, is a very useful thing to harness. You know, healthcare is not the military. It might look like it's got hierarchies on organization charts, but that's not the way clinicians work. They work very laterally, very horizontally rather than vertically. Uh, and they work on the basis of expertise and networks. So if you're a manager, it's the wrong model to try and use a hierarchy and impose things on clinical groups. It's much more productive to say, I'm in partnership with clinicians um, and, um, and uh, I'm going to work with them rather than against the currents of the way clinicians work. I'm going to work with them uh, as productively as possible. It's, you'll get much more responsiveness from clinicians if you do that. There is still often a sort of them and us culture um, between managers and clinicians. You see that in a lot of organisations. And actually, I think um, for managers to become and for clinicians to see managers as embedded 
as part of the team delivering care, which includes the clinicians, the non-clinical support staff, the managers, and then of course the patient as well. And for them to see change that's generated, as Jeffrey said, by a networked lateral team that brings different areas of expertise to that process you know manage clinicians can often undervalue the skill sets that managers have so to sort of clinicians to recognize um, and respond to their expertise in the way they would respond to clinical expertise in, in a peer I think that's a very important kind of culture change that's going to help this process um, and then for that whole team to work together um, and to try and create some space to do that do a good job understand how the things that they're doing well are going well as Jeffrey said we don't spend enough time doing that understand what the systems enablers are that that produces that conditions for that to happen and then to sort of work on areas where it could be improved you know that that would be my sort of ideal vision of how things would, would go forward and actually I think I'm going to just shamelessly plug the article here I think um the the table where um, Jeffrey's outlined the sort of um, the complexity oriented enablers and insights, um, we know with some things for policymakers, some things for managers and improvement teams, some things for frontline clinicians. I think, you know, there's a lot there for understanding how different members of that team with different experience and expertise um, can most effectively bring those insights to bear on the change process. If I can just say a couple of things by way of I don't know, finishing off, uh, because I think that's what you're trying to do, Duncan. You know, clinicians are amongst the smartest and mo most motivated people on the planet. Hardly anybody has their level of um, motivation to do well by their, their customers, the, the patients. But on, we've sent them a strange message. The, the health system sent clinicians a strange message. On the one hand, it said, we're running an unblaming system. And that's a QI, quality improvement kind of mantra, okay? But on the other hand, every clinician on the front lines of care knows that if things go wrong, bad things can happen to them. There can be a root cause analysis or an inquiry, or I know the BMJ has been talking a lot about the Bawagaba case recently. So, so you know, this, it, you can't send smart people a message like that, a, a, almost a forked tongue message that um, it's an unblaming system, but if things go wrong... We're going to come after you. And, and, and that's not good. Uh, so, so in this piece that I wrote, and, and I think will be reflected in the series, I'm hoping so, a half a dozen principles that are better than that. One is that we need to pay much more attention to the complexities of care on the front lines because it's not the way it looks like in a policy manual when everything looks like, you know, if you do this, we will have better care because it's much more messy and imprecise and uncertain and difficult than that. Another one is care is produced not by top-down admonitions, but networks of clinicians and referral networks and teamwork um, that, it, that is also complex. Another thing is to recognise every time that clinicians get far more right than they get wrong. And we should recognise that. We should support them in producing more of that. And another one is we should be a little more humble in the way we approach change. There's been an awful lot of big change issues from big IT, big information technology systems and large scale restructuring that haven't produced much change at all, but induced a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unhappiness. On the other hand, small scale, as Kat said, small scale um, initiatives by clinicians themselves 
I've often done a lot of good in the system. And we should recognize that. Be a little more humble about smaller scale local initiatives that can produce good results and then try and spread those good ideas rather than just bashing people over the head from the top down. You've been listening to Geoffrey Braithwaite and Kat Chatfield talk about quality as an emergent property of complexity. As Kat said at the beginning, this is part of a longer collection of articles and we'll be doing intermittent podcasts with the authors when they go up. While you're waiting for that, we're going to be finding out about how biochemical variation in children means that they need their own set of reference values. And two of the proponents of overdiagnosis, Steve Wollishin and Lisa Schwartz, answer some of the criticisms that have been levelled against the movement by Lisa Rosenbaum in the NEJM. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. We're pretty much everywhere now, so no excuses. You can also find our fullback catalogue on bmj.com slash podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.